main verses tonight will be starting in verse 18 of chapter 2. And we're going to take a moment here and pray to open up our service, but as we are praying, we're going to pray for our students and some of our adults as they are going around doing a prayer walk through our schools. We mentioned that this morning. Um, If you have any kids or grandkids or relatives who go to Poto, you know they're starting Wednesday, which of course they're all very excited about. Um, None of them are excited about it. It's school starting back, but it is happening. The inevitable is happening, Um, and we of course want our students to understand they're there for a purpose and to keep them in that mindset of understanding that even at a young age, they can be missional where they are. Um, So be praying for them uh, as we pray to open up this morning or this evening. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for tonight, God. We thank you for this time that you've allowed us to be here, Father. Lord, I I thank you for this church. God, we thank you that you've you've blessed us so much with this group of people, this this body of Christ who can gather together on a weekly basis. And God, we thank you for the freedom to do so. Father, we pray for this time that we would focus on your word. God, that every one of us would see the truths that are there in it. God, that we would align our lives to it. And God, that we would understand that it is your word. It is not man's opinions. It is not man's doctrine. It is, it is your word. It is what you're telling us. And Father, we pray today as we're focused on our students, focused on the kids, whether they go to Poto, whether they go to another school, whether in their, they're in a homeschool setting, wherever they are, God, as they prepare or maybe have already started their school back, God, that they would, they would work hard at it as unto you, and God, that they would understand the people that they come across in those settings, there to be a light to them. Father, be with our students, be with uh, the teachers and the staff, and ultimately, God, we pray that those who don't know you would come to know you through the ministry of these students. Father, we thank you again for everything you've given to us, and we thank you most of all for Jesus. We pray these things in his name. So we're in 1 Peter chapter 2 tonight, and some of you may remember that we've been actually going through the book of 1 Peter for quite a while now. We started about three years ago, and we started going in verse 1 of 1 Peter chapter 1, and we've been going verse by verse ever since. And I know it's been about three years because about a week ago I went back and I was curious and said, well, how long or, or when did we start that? And it was actually back in 2016. So we've been slowly chipping away at the book of First Peter. God's Word is such an incredible thing because the book of First Peter, if you are familiar with it, and I would say that most of us are, you know it's not a very long book. We, we could take this moment and we could read and we could read the entire book in 10, 15 minutes. But, but when you start to dive into it, when you start to pull it out and pull it apart, you begin to really see how much is in the Word of God. It's, it's weighty. It's not something that we should just breeze through and pretend like we got all of it. We cannot exhaust God's Word. Even just looking at one small letter that we see in God's Word, it is foundational and it is something that we should align our lives to. And so we've been taking 
three years, periodically, different services, different sermons, and we've been going verse by verse, and we're still in chapter 2. And so that's a blessing to be able to study God's Word and to really intentionally look at it. But because it has been a while, I think we need to review a little bit and talk a little bit about the book of 1 Peter. Of course, we know this was a letter that was written by the Apostle Peter. Peter was, as Paul calls him in Galatians, somewhat of a pillar of the early church. So much so that Jesus changed his name in Matthew 16 to Peter or Petros, as the Greek word is, and says you are a rock. Now, the word Petros, and this is important in Matthew 16, it means pebble. Jesus says your name is Petros, which means small rock or pebble. And he says, and on this rock I will build my church. And that's the word Petra. Of course, Christ is referencing the fact that he is Messiah. That is the foundation and the rock of the church, not Peter. But he is instrumental in the early church. And what's interesting about Peter is we only see him writing two books of the New Testament. We see Paul and all the letters that he wrote, and we see Peter, who only wrote First and Second Peter. But there's still a lot here. The audience that Peter is writing to is the group of Christians who have been dispersed because of persecution, because of suffering. We see it in the book of Acts beginning to take place in Jerusalem, and then from there we see it in different pockets throughout the early church. Persecution breaking out and dispersing the church. So he's writing to a group of people who are suffering and who are being persecuted. The type of persecution that, honestly, I could not even imagine going through. This is who Peter is writing to. He's writing to this group of people who are suffering, suffering just like he himself has suffered for the name of Christ. But what's interesting in chapter 1, and this is the only thing I want us to pull out of chapter 1, what's interesting is that Peter's comfort for this people who is suffering has nothing to do with material possessions. It has nothing to do with temporary comforts. It has everything to do with the salvation that they possess in Christ. That is their comfort. And church, that is our comfort tonight. That is our comfort throughout our days, throughout our suffering, throughout the difficulties that life presents. We don't look at material things that are temporary, that fade away. We look at our salvation that we possess in Christ. He starts off there in chapter 1 and says, We have an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Not only is First Peter such a foundational book, but it's also a very doctrinal book. We see a lot of doctrines that we cling to clearly described in the book of First Peter. And this is some of those verses that points to eternal security. Uh, many of you know I didn't grow up in the Baptist church. I grew up in the Methodist denomination. Forgive me for that. The Lord saved me, so that's good. I was about 16, 17 years old, and I began to study Scripture for myself and say, okay, I don't, I don't really care what the Methodist church says. I don't really care what other churches say. I just want to know what Scripture teaches. And First Peter was pivotal for me because of that doctrine of eternal security, that, that God is keeping us. Salvation from beginning to end is a faithful work of God in and through our lives. It has nothing to do with me. It has nothing to do with my work or anything that I could earn. It is all praise and glory to God who is keeping me. And Paul talks about this. Peter talks about this. And then we get to chapter 2 to review and to connect us to where we are 
tonight. He kind of shifts to how they can live even in the middle of these difficulties, even in the middle of these persecutions. He starts off there in verse 1 of chapter 2. He says, so put away. That is the same word that's used that we were looking at this morning in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. Laying aside the, the weights and the sins which cling so closely, it's the same word. Peter is saying, put away these things, this malice, this deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander. He said, put these things away and transversely crave the pure spiritual milk of God's word. Crave what is actually good for you. Not the things that harm you, not the things that divide you, but the things that make you, as he puts it in verse 2, grow up into salvation. And he goes on in this pointing towards Christ. And this is why I mentioned Matthew 16, that Christ is the rock that the church will be built on and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. He says that Christ is our cornerstone. He is the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And the cornerstone in ancient architecture is very important. It's the most important piece when it comes to any kind of a building. We see a clearer picture of this or a, a, a different picture in Ephesians chapter 2 starting about verse 19 and 20. And Paul, writing in Ephesians, says that we're being fitted together as living stones with the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So it begins to paint this picture of what the church of God or the house of God actually is now. It says the, the foundation is the, the prophets and the apostles, the word of God, and Christ Jesus himself is the cornerstone. Everything hinges on who Christ is. He is the most important piece to the church. We've said this in talking about Christ being the cornerstone. If Southside is going to be a church that is relevant in its ministry, then that has to be the starting place. There cannot be compromise on that one part. Christ has to be about everything that we are doing through this church and through the ministry of this church. And if we don't start there, then we've already started completely wrong. We have to understand that Christ is the cornerstone. And Peter, in chapter 2, he says, Christ is the cornerstone. Verse 5, he says, You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifice acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So the author of Hebrews is painting this picture of what the temple of God looks like now. It's not a physical building. Instead, it's a group of people. The church is no longer a building. Think about how radical this would sound in this day coming from someone like Peter. Peter was a Jew, right? Peter was someone who was a devout Jew. We see pictures of this throughout the Gospels. I think of Acts chapter 10 when he has the vision of the animals that come down and it says, Rise, kill, and I've never eaten anything unclean. He's a Jew, and I think that he is a devout Jew. And here is Peter understanding the significance of the temple, understanding that that's where the Spirit of, the God, Spirit of God dwelt. And now he's saying it's no longer about a building. It's about a people. The Spirit of God now dwells in us. Paul tells us this in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 in dealing with an issue of sexual morality in the church and the church being inclusive of it instead of rebuking it. He tells them in chapter 6, I believe starting in verse 19, he says, Don't you know that your body is a temple? That the Holy Spirit dwells inside of you. That's important for us to see. That Peter and Paul, who understood the significance 
of the Old Testament temple and the synagogue is saying, no, it's no longer about a building. It's about a people that God has saved, that God has redeemed for his own purposes. That we are to go out and to share that gospel as a people. And that's what he's teaching us. That's what he's telling us. And that's what he's telling this group of people that he's writing to. He goes on and tells them in verse 9, you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. But then we get to this thought that he kind of shifts gears and tells them that it's just a different situation that they're living in. Look at verse 11 really quick. I know we're in verse 18, but look at verse 11. He says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. So so even though all of these things are true of them, that they are a chosen race, that they are a royal priesthood, that they are a holy nation, he says at this point in time, in this life, remember, you don't belong here. This isn't your home. You are on a journey, and this is not your home. You're not a citizen of this place. Actually, you're a foreigner. You're someone who is passing through another land, realizing and understanding that this isn't your permanent home. He says, you're in the middle of this culture that doesn't belong to you. Paul tells us in Philippians that we are citizens of heaven. Christian, that is where our citizenship truly lies, with him in eternity. That's where we belong, and that's... And that's good news, because I don't know about you, but I don't want to stay here very long. This isn't a very encouraging, comforting place to be. And especially understanding the context of who Peter is writing to, this group of people, that would have been encouraging to them to hear, hey, this is just for a short time. You're a foreigner. You don't belong here forever. This is temporary. And then from that, he jumps to verse 13. And he begins to talk about us as Christians being subject to different authorities. And last time we were here, we did 13 through 17, and we looked at what he's telling us concerning the government, that we're to be subject to the governing authorities for the Lord's sake. He says, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors, as sent by him to punish those who do evil and praise those who do Good, For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people, live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. So this is the point that Peter is making. You don't belong here. You're in this world. You're in this life only temporarily. This is how you should respond to the authorities in your life. He's telling this group of Christians who are suffering at the hands of the government, who are suffering at the hands of the governing authorities, he said, you need to submit to them and understand that it is God's will to go through what you're going through. He has purposes for this. And this is where we get to verse 18. And the focus becomes a little bit more personal and individual. Look there in verse 18 with me. It starts out, he says, servants... Be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. So now he shifts focus just a little bit as speaking to a specific group of people, servants. This is, this is a word in the Greek 
it really tells us he's talking to household slaves. People who were part of the culture or a part of the family who were slaves and belonged to a certain family. So here's the context and the culture of what's going on. The gospel, as we know and as we study in the book of Acts, was spreading like wildfire to all people. Whether someone high in authority, someone who was rich, someone who had all the possessions that they could ever want, or even someone as lowly as a household slave. The gospel was going to them all. And all kinds of different people were hearing the gospel and believing the gospel and being saved. And so there was groups of people who were household slaves who were being saved by the gospel message. And that's something to be thankful for and something that they were thankful for. But then some issues arise concerning this group of people. There were two issues that could potentially arise with these groups of people as Christians. Being a servant, being a household slave, understanding who Christ is, understanding that they were once slaves to sin, but now are set free, as we talked about briefly this morning, they would look at their spiritual situation in Christ and say, well, I'm set free by Christ. I've been redeemed. I've been saved. I've been forgiven. So that means that I should be free in my physical life. And they would abandon their homes and they would run away and they would rebel and they would do all these things trying to get their physical freedom. So we had that situation going on in the church. And then we had the situation of a servant, this household slave, who had a master who also was saved. And so in the home, it was this master-servant relationship, but in the church, that doesn't carry over. God certainly doesn't have favoritism, and neither should we. And so the question came in of how do we deal with these situations? How do we respond to these situations? Because the reality is, church, this kind of servitude, is something that has continued to go on throughout all of history. Culturally, this was a common thing. Someone who was a servant, someone who was a part of the family in that way, someone who was viewed as a possession, this is something that has happened throughout human history. And actually, it's something that continues to happen today. We have this idea, I think, as Americans sometimes, that slavery has ended. It hasn't. There are actually more slaves in our world today than there ever have been throughout human history. last number I heard was somewhere around 27 million slaves. This is something that is still in our world common. And back in ancient days, in biblical times, this was a common situation. This relationship of a master and a servant. And this question came up of, okay, now I'm a Christian, so what's my response to these situations? How do I respond to these situations? What do I do concerning this situation as a servant? Should I, should I fight for my freedom? Should I run away from my master? Should I submit to the, my master in the church because he's my master out in the real world? What, what do I do? How do I respond to these things? And all of these things going on and all these questions circling about, Peter very simply tells us in one statement how they should respond. We see that in verse 18. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect. Kind of cleared it up for him, didn't it? This is how you respond to these situations. You submit or be subject, submit, obey your masters with all respect. No matter what. And that's when we get to verse, the rest of verse 18. He says, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. Regardless if it is a master who was good and gentle, that word good meaning someone who benefited someone else, and the word gentle actually meaning fair, or someone who would 
even hurt themselves to help this other person. He says, whether you have a master who's like that, who is helpful, who is good to you, who is fair, who is gentle, or have a master who is unjust. The Greek word for unjust is scolios. It's where we get our word for scoliosis, meaning curved or crooked, someone who is perverse, someone who is oppressive. And let me say, regardless of what Scripture says, and regardless of what people say in pulling out Scripture and twisting it, God never condones the oppression of another human being. Never. We see it in Exodus chapter 21, verse 26 and 27. We see it in Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 15. Even feasts and celebration that God's, God instituted so that a slave, if they wanted to be free, they could get their freedom. Every seven years, there was this opportunity, the, the year of Jubilee, the celebration of the slaves being set free and having their freedom. And so these are people who are saved, who are Christian, and this is a question that they have of how do we deal with these things? Do we rebel? Do we fight against those who are unjust? And Peter says very simply, no, you submit. And here's where it gets connected to us. Because a lot of people have looked at this word for servant and said, yes, it's talking about a household slave, but also it would be related today to an employer-employee relationship. We have jobs, don't we? We have people who are over us in authority. And this is how we apply this to our life personally today, Christian, understanding that regardless of where we are at a job, in a workplace, there's going to be someone over us in authority and someone who may mistreat us and be unfair to us. And oftentimes we have this idea that we should fight for our rights and we should do whatever we can to get equal footing compared to someone else. But the reality is, Scripture very clearly teaches us, no, submit to those authorities. And the question is, why? Why should we submit to those authorities? Why should we do these things that sometimes doesn't make sense in our own mind? Well, because, Christian, the first thing we need to remember in all of these situations, in Peter writing this to these Christians, there are two things we need to remember. The first thing is no matter what situation we are in, no matter what situation you are in right now, in a job situation or someone who is over you in authority, remember that God is sovereign. He is in control, is he not? He is in control. There is nothing that has escaped his sight. This connects us to the five verses before in 13 through 17 concerning the government. Even in the worst situation you could possibly imagine, God is still sovereign. He has not forgotten about us. He has not overlooked your situation. And He is still sovereign over it. And the second thing to remember is that God is just. God will not let wrongdoing go unpunished. He won't. God is someone who is just, and as we see in Scripture, vengeance is the Lord's. He fights for us. We submit to these people who are unjust and crooked, unfair, even harming us, trusting our lives to God who is sovereign and just and who will fight for us. We see a picture of this in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, starting about 3. Paul writing to this church at Thessalonica he says, for this is the will of God, that you abstain from sexual immorality, 
So he's talking about sexual morality in context, but he goes on and says, anyone who wrongs his brother in this matter, the Lord is an avenger. That's terrifying language. The fact is, in that situation, in these situations, we must remember that God is sovereign and he is someone who is fighting for us and is just in all of these situations. God will have the final say in your situation. God will have the final say in all of these difficulties and all of these tragic situations. God will still, at the end of it all, be glorified. And Christian, our job is not to worry about when, but to be concerned about what he calls us to right now. And that's what we see in these scriptures. Be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. Look there in verse 19. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. We submit to our masters, one, because we understand that God is sovereign. We understand that God is just. And then in verse 19, we understand that God is pleased when we respond in a godly way. That word favorable or that word gracious, it means a favorable thing. It is not that God is is thankful when we go through a difficult time, but he is thankful that when we as his children respond in a godly, holy manner, that we submit to an employer, that we submit to whatever authority is over us because we are honoring him and we are trusting him in that situation. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. And church, I think we've all been there, haven't we? Maybe, maybe it's a job, maybe it's some other organization or some other setting where you have someone who's over you in authority and something transpires where you are blamed for something where you had nothing to do with it. That word unjustly, it actually means without fault. That you are suffering for something that you had nothing to do with and that was in no way your fault. That's what Peter is talking about. And in the middle of that situation, it is a gracious thing that when we as the children of God respond in a godly way and we endure that sorrow, understanding that he is sovereign and understanding that he is just over these situations. And then he goes on in verse 20 and says, For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? For what credit is it if you do something wrong and you suffer the consequences, you endure that? There's no credit for that. That's not the situation that Peter is talking about because you had consequences for that action, Right? Growing up as a kid, if I ever did anything wrong, well, let me rephrase that, when I did things wrong, because I did, and I suffered for it at the hands of my mother or father, and they disciplined me, they grounded me, they gave me a stern talking to, whatever it was, they whooped me, I deserved it if they did, and they did. Whatever I went through, that's no credit of mine if I suffered that way, because I, I deserved that. That's a consequence, consequence for my actions. The point is, someone who is in a situation who is suffering unjustly, yet enduring it still, being mindful of God. And that's the next part we see. But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. That word endure there, it means to patiently 
go through something. It's actually the same word that's used in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, describing Jesus enduring the cross. The type of enduring he's talking about, suffering unjustly, suffering unfairly. It's the type of endurance that is picturing Christ and his endurance to a lost and dying world. That we are suffering unjustly. Yes, it's not fair. Yes, it's not right. But we are going through it and we are suffering under the weight of it, remembering who God is and remembering what Christ went through. Because if we're going to talk about someone who didn't get a fair shake, look no further than Jesus. Was he not treated unfairly? Is he not our great example of someone who suffered unfairly at the hands of evil men for a greater good? And that's the point that he gets to in verse 21. In talking about suffering unjustly at the hands of a lost world, he says, for to this you have been called. And that's a difficult truth for us, Christian. We've talked a lot about this out of 1 Peter because it deals a lot with the, the fact of suffering, going through tragedy. Go through the Gospels, go through the letters. You will see very quickly that we as Christians will suffer persecution. We will suffer tribulation because of our faith. We're experiencing that now, aren't we? We're seeing these things now in our own country being mocked and belittled because we have faith in Christ. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Again, when we think of someone who suffered unfairly, Christ is our perfect example of someone who endured someone who endured under hardship, who endured under the unfairness of evil men so that a greater good could be accomplished. When we think about what Jesus went through, he was arrested at night. He was brought into trial at night, which was wrong, which was against their customs and their law. He was accused wrongly. False witnesses were brought in testifying against him. He was condemned to die. And he suffered the death of a crucifixion as a murderer and a prisoner when he had done nothing wrong. But even the greatest picture of how unfairly he was treated is the fact that he endured the wrath of God that you and I deserve. Jesus didn't deserve that. He was treated unfairly, but he endured it. He bared up under the weight of it, understanding what it would produce three days later a living hope for a lost humanity. So church, I I will leave you with this. When you are struggling with someone who is over you in authority and you're dealing with this issue of submitting to them and how to respond to them, understand that moment and what you do in that moment of suffering unjustly, it matters. It matters. You are either displaying to a lost and dying world that you trust God in the middle of being treated unfairly, or you're displaying that you don't. Peter's scripture, his language is very clear. It's very straightforward. We can't twist it, and nor should we. 
We as the people of Christ, we as the children of God, are to submit to people who are over us in authority, enduring these things and trusting God in the middle of these things. Let's pray this evening. Father, I thank you for tonight, God. I thank you for this time that you've allowed us to be here tonight, Father, that we have been able to study your word, we've been able to dive into your word. And Father, I know that these scriptures that we look at and these scriptures that we we talk about tonight, Father, they're difficult. They're, They're hard for us to take. But God, your word is very clear. It's very straightforward. That God, if you've called us to suffer, if you've if you've called us to endure these things unjustly, it's for a greater good, it's for a greater purpose. And God, help us as your church to trust you in the middle of these situations, to remember that you are sovereign, to remember that you are just, and to remember that none of these things escape your sight. Father, we thank you. We praise you for all that you've done for us. And most of all, God, we thank you for Jesus. And we pray these things in his name. Amen. If you would, stand with us.